Dr. Jay Green of the Heritage Foundation. I'm really glad to talk to you this morning. Um, you know, even as we speak, I think right now is uh, Tuesday morning and there's a hearing go happening in Missouri on a series of five bills. And let me just be completely accurate here and, and tell you what they are, because this is what's happening in our state. And I know it's happening everywhere, but it, it's one on social studies curriculum, curriculum material, discrimination, education, you know, the full suite of things. Five bills are considering this morning. And that's because I, I kind of feel like Missouri's a um you know, in the middle of the country, we're red, 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 uh, governor, House and Senate. We don't, still can't really agree on things uh, when it comes to public education. But somehow in the last year or so, we've become this unified force around letting parents speak their views, making sure everybody knows what's being taught and uh, trying to hold schools accountable. And, you know, you have an article or report recently about this the idea of somehow the culture wars and school choice that you and I have been working in for a long, long time, decades, meshing together in this situation. So, so I just want to hear your take on it. What do you think is going on? Sure. So, um, look, I think we have to understand education as an extension of parenting. It is and always has been part of what parents do to raise their children and prepare them for adult lives that they wish to have for their children. And um, this has worked reasonably well in the past because schools were reasonably well aligned with parents in their preferences, the values that were being taught, the content that was being taught, and the pedagogy that was preferred. And uh, to a large degree, this was possible because American education was highly decentralized so that People sorted themselves into communities where they had roughly similar values and preferences, and the schools were designed to be attentive to those local preferences. And so they basically were collaborating with each other in raising their collective children. And uh, this describes, you know, a good part of American education history. Um, but more recently, as education systems have been centralized so that decisions are less in the control of, of local ed, uh, educators and administrators. Um, and as the teaching workforce has been professionalized where they see their job at, not as uh, assisting parents in raising children, but as in sometimes rescuing children from the backwardness of their parents, sure. um, <clears throat> then there's increasingly been a disconnect between families and schools over how to raise children. And um, wealthy families have been able to avoid this problem to some degree by exercising greater residential school choice or private school choice uh, where they could still ensure that the education was aligned with their family's preferences and values. Um, but what happened during the pandemic, I think, is, is kind of twofold. Um, one is that parents were able to see directly the education of their children sure. much more than they could in the past. And what they saw shocked them in many cases. Uh, they were shocked by the low quality in many cases. And uh, even more frequently, they were shocked by extreme values that were out of sync with the preferences of their family. And, um, and so uh, this was, combined with an increasing radicalization of the teaching workforce where- Can teachers... I just stop you? Why? Sure. I, that's the piece that I, I see it, I know it. 
I don't understand how it came to be. Well, it flows logically from the professionalization of teachers. So um, if as part of teachers' self-image as professionals, they don't see themselves as working for parents. Uh, as they see themselves as professionalizing, they see themselves as the expert and parents should be deferring to them and their, their expertise. And, uh, and that's been going on for a couple decades. Mm-hmm. What happened though, is that teachers collectively decided across the country to use this expertise, to use this professionalism to advance a particular set of social and political goals in the last few years. And this is uh, in part uh, in response to a number of highly controversial and difficult incidents involving race in this country. And and these are difficult issues, Um, but these are issues that communities and families have worked out with their schools locally to figure out how to handle them. And what's different this time is that teachers no longer saw themselves as partners with their families and communities, but saw themselves as 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 um, rescuers of of the children from the families and communities. And as that ideology took root in the teaching workforce, it empowered them to behave in more extreme ways that they felt unrestrained in the values they were teaching, even though they knew in many cases that that they were at odds with what their families and communities wanted. And the families and communities could see it directly because the materials were being beamed into their house. And this led to a a, a real peak in culture clash in the last two years and has resulted in significant election consequence. Uh, The Virginia election outcome, the San Francisco uh, uh, school board recall election are both very high profile examples of how when- Talk a little bit about the San Francisco one. So in case sure, people I mean, listening to this don't know. Sure. So the, the you know, San Francisco is a, a, a liberal city, um, heavily democratic uh, in its party affiliation. Um, and, uh, but the school board and, and the school system got out way ahead of where the, <laughs> even their parents and community uh, so, so the getting out of sync is not simply between conservative parents and the school system. It's right. between a very broad segment of, of parents, including liberal parents, who support the Democratic Party, who have liberal preferences, but they're not radicals. And a lot of the stuff that they saw coming into their home from the school and a lot of the stuff that they heard from their school board Uh, made them believe that their school system was radical and was indoctrinating their children in values that were extreme and and deeply at odds with the ones that they were trying to raise their children to have. And a lot of focusing on the names of schools. Right. So so in in particular in San Francisco, school board members spent an enormous amount of energy on uh, renaming schools uh, to align with, um, uh, to, to correct for uh, injustice, racial injustices of the past, um, the removal of murals at enormous expense to erase um, uh, 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 George Washington from from the walls of school buildings. Um, and at a time when basically the schools are closed. 
and, and refusing to, to have the schools open for in-person instruction when many parents, some parents wanted that, but some parents wanted the option of in-person instruction because they really valued the custodial care that schools provide uh, so that they can go to work and do other things in their lives. And, and the indifference and hostility that they found in their school system to their preferences about in-person instruction, about uh, attention to radical values, um, angered liberal parents in San Francisco to the point where they overwhelmingly voted three quarters supported the recall of three school board members. Um, and, 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 and so that's why I think that, that the culture war is something that the, the education reform movement actually has to embrace. Now, yeah. let me be clear about a few terms here. One is the culture war has already begun. So, so I'm not sure. suggesting that, that education reformers initiate a culture war. It's already underway. It's already happening. The question is, how will the education reform movement address this war that is underway? The current dominant response in the education reform movement is to try to pretend like it doesn't exist. Yep. And to ignore it um, because it feels icky to the people who work in the education reform movement. It's not cool in their social circles uh, <laughs> to, to give credence to these issues. And they're donors. Explain why. I mean, I get it, but sure. not everyone will get it. But sure. So the why. education reform movement is overwhelmingly populated by highly educated progressives. Uh, and we know this uh, from, an, from in a number of ways. Rick Hess and I did a study in 2019 where we looked at, for example, at the campaign contributions of grantees of the Walton Family Foundation and Gates Foundation. Um, and we wanted to see what basically what is the partisan composition of the education reform movement as proxied by grantees of those two foundations. And what we found is that, you know, over 90% of the campaign contributions were going to the Democratic Party. And this was such a high rate of, of giving to the Democratic Party that it exceeded the rate of the teachers unions. The teachers unions give a higher percentage to Republicans than do the, the people who staff the education reform movement. So the education reform movement is, is, is is very monolithically left-wing in its political orientation. I imagine that people won't believe you when you say this, but okay. People it, think of it as being a conservative right-wing issue. It is not. It, it, it's populated overwhelmingly by progressives. Um, and they come from a, um, uh, a set of elite colleges. They're highly educated people, um, but they're also highly incestuous and insular. So they essentially hire themselves. So Teach for America was a pipeline yeah. that, that fed uh, people into the education reform movement. And they basically recruited it at elite colleges, largely progressives from elite colleges. They had a lot of training and indoctrination in progressive priorities, which had the effect of driving out any conservatives from wanting to do this thing uh, and attracting the people who, who liked that kind of training. And then the TFA alums become the staff at the foundations. They found new advocacy organizations. Yep. Um, and then their friends who are the fellow alums at the foundations give them grants. Uh, the foundations hire some of the advocacy staff to become their program officers. And okay. it's a big uh, incestuous uh, love fest. That's where cool. they, they hand each other money and make speeches to each other about how right they are. Um, and oddly, 
The only thing more unaccountable than public education is the education reform movement. Okay. Completely unaccountable. There, there's no, there's no consequence to being wrong. As long as the money keeps flowing, and as long as you are respected and have status in this circle, you're fine. And and so they they have a status system that gives high priority to to espousing progressive bromides. Um, and there's a lot of funding available if you do that. And whether you succeed or not in actually changing policy seems to have no consequence for your standing in the education reform movement. And that's, so, so they've, when they look at these culture war fights that are already underway, the education reform movement is inclined to say, icky, we don't like these issues. We don't like the people who espouse these issues, um, who have concerns about them. Um, they're inclined to think of those people as racists and bigots, uh, and they frequently will call them that. Um, and uh, this is a bad idea for the education reform movement. It makes uh, getting their policies through harder. Now, it makes their getting it through harder because the people who are engaged in the culture war on the right happen to be extremely well organized, highly politically influential, and, and very well connect, connected mm -hmm. to the Republican Party. And then also in another study that, that James Paul and I did that we released last fall, we documented that basically Republicans drive almost all of the school choice legislation, right? So if we looked at 70 state legislative votes on final passage of private school choice bills, and yep. we counted up how many Democrats voted for these bills. So the first thing we observed is very few Democrats ever vote for them. About 15% of, of Democrats vote yes on these bills. Um, compared to about 85% of Republicans voting yes. So Republicans overwhelmingly vote yes on these things. Democrats overwhelmingly vote no. But more importantly, we looked at whether having that small number of Democrats vote yes made a big difference in getting over the 50% hump so that you could pass these bills. So we, we looked at what would happen if every Democrat who had voted yes was actually counted as a no. How many of these bills still would have reached 50%? And the answer and the is... Answer is 67 of the yeah. 70 bills that we looked at would have reached 50% support, even if every Democrat had voted no. And so the entire political strategy of the education reform movement to court Democrats, to use rhetoric uh, that appeals to Democrats, uh, to, to elected Democrats, um, uh, that has not borne fruit at all, despite decades and hundreds of millions of dollars of investment. Don't get me well, wrong. I don't think there's anything wrong with trying to appeal to Democrats. And if they wish to support education reform measures, that would be great. Their but constituents the largely support, but I, they, they do. have a tendency to go against their constituents in this case. Well, so so I think I think that's been something that has has led the, the education reform movement astray is that okay. it's true that polling has shown that particularly urban minority Democrats um, support school choice uh, uh, at very high rates. Um, and this has seduced the education reform movement into believing that if only they courted Democrats, um, they uh, could apply pressure to the elected officials to get them to flip and support reform and, and get enough of them to flip that they could have the bipartisan coalition they want to get more bills passed in more states. 
this has never worked, right? That's the, it's, it was a great theory. There was nothing wrong with trying it, but we have to look at the evidence honestly and, and, and see that it did not work. And it, the reason why it didn't work is that public opinion polls don't determine policy outcomes. We don't, yeah. we don't live in a society where we rule by plebiscite. And so there are a number of reasons why the public opinion polls might not be consistent with what actually happens. One is that what people answer when they, when, when they are asked a question on a poll isn't necessarily what you think you're asking them, right? Yeah. So, so at second, we don't really gauge intensity of preference when we ask people. So we don't know how much they really care, how much are they willing to fight for it? Third, not everyone is equally well positioned to organize and, and exercise effective influence. And so if low-income urban minority populations are very supportive of school choice, but they lack political power, right. then the unions will be more influential with those elected representatives and will never get those elected officials to flip. And that is apparently what has happened. Well, since we're talking politics so much, the thing that I have, that I, I guess, discovered when I started working at state level that surprised me because I wasn't aware of it was the real resistance among rural Republicans to school choice. And what's been interesting is that seemingly in Missouri, now nothing has passed this year, gone to the governor, but it seems to be changing and that the rural Republicans, to your point, like you're talking about the teaching of diversity, equity, and inclusion, the teaching of CRT, the 1619 projects, socio-emotional learning, a lot of the stuff around gender, rural Republicans seem to really dislike that stuff. Right. I think so. So this is the opportunity that is being presented to the education reform movement that we should be seizing. This is the, the culture war opportunity. Again, it's happening whether we want to engage it or not. Um, so our engaging it doesn't make it happen, um, but we can channel it into policy victory for things that we care about. So um, uh, yes, it's true that just because people are Republicans doesn't mean they support school choice. And the education reform movement has to do work to get Republicans to support this, particularly rural Republicans. Um, although the data shows that that's work that can be rewarded, right? They will vote for it if effort is applied and the appropriate rhetoric is used to convince them. Uh, if, if we denounce them as bigots and racists, um, and it's not going to work. Then, then we don't win them, right? Um, but but we can win them, and we can particularly win them if we acknowledge the legitimacy of, of their concerns about yeah. issues on race and gender and the values that their kids are being taught in rural areas. And so now we've given those communities and their elected officials a reason to be interested in school choice, right? It solves and especially a at a time, yeah, especially at a time when, you know, two years ago in Missouri, we have a a very large number of districts, 520. A lot of them are very, very small. And when the schools closed, they were the ones that were making the copies of paper pa homework packets and asking people to pick them up, asking people to drop them off so they could prove something, they could get their state funding. They really had very few resources. We have connectivity issues, we have uh, uh, device issues, you know, and these were ones that really shut down and really suffered. And there's a ton of learning loss. I don't even think we know right now. We know that last year about a third of Missouri children scored proficient in math of the ones who took the test. So we're really in deep trouble here. And I think, you know, I had somebody call into a radio show I was on and was like, two plus two doesn't equal four anymore. But like, there's these 
basic problems that aren't being addressed. If kids graduate from high school, they can't read or do math. That's legitimately true. A third of our high schools don't even offer calculus. We have legitimate problems. And then we're, we're no San Francisco for sure, but we see the schools out in Springfield, Missouri, really focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion. It's like, hey, our kids aren't able to read or do math. This right. is what okay. we so, want so you I to focus it's, on. It's the, in part, it's the relative emphasis on the social issues compared yeah. to academic skill and knowledge issues. But some of it is is the, the content of, of the social issues itself. So, I mean, one of the big things that's coming down the pike that <clears throat> I think people need to keep an eye on is what's called SOGI or sexual orientation, gender identity. Um, and um, it's becoming a really contentious issue in schools. And- um, In what way? So- like how's, how's it manifesting? Okay, so um, uh, a very large percentage, particularly of middle school girls, um, are now beginning to identify as non-binary, okay? And um, this is um, largely being driven by peer influence. So, I mean, you might think of this sure, as of course. the, the middle kind school of- girls. Eight, With right, all due respect to middle school girls, and I have a daughter, it's a kind of a squirrely age. Right, this is the, in some ways, the eating disorder of the 2020s. Ophelia, um, the reviving there, Ophelia. There, there is kind of a social contagion here. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and girls are referring each other to various internet resources to help. Yeah. Uh, so, they, I mean, they, they have problems. It's very uncomfortable to be a middle school girl in various ways. It's uncomfortable to be a middle school boy, too. For sure, for sure. There are, there are specific issues that, that girls are facing that... And, and then there, there are people who are offering them solutions to their problems. And those solutions may not be the solutions that families would prefer that their children pursue. Um, right. and, and so the issue is what is the school gonna do with respect to this? And I think what we're finding is that a lot of schools believe it's their job, their professional responsibility to affirm these middle school girls in their potential transition in gender identity and uh, to conceal this from the families. That's where their rubber really hits the road, right? And, and let me tell you, this is something that bothers parents yeah. across the ideological and demographic spectrum. Absolutely. Right. Liberal Absolutely. parents want their children to be tolerant, uh, accepting, they they can believe that that there is a, such a thing as people finding themselves in a body that does not conform with their gender identity. People can believe all these things, but it's not something that they wish for their children. Yeah. And it's not something that they wish for their children if they think that it doesn't actually authentically represent the situation of their children. That's right. And they know their children pretty well. Um, and And so, you know, uh, but the, the way that the education professionals see this is that they see this as essentially following the same script as sexual orientation. That yeah. is, the, the script there is, it's so hard to identify as, uh, as, as homosexual that no one would do it unless they, it was sincere and an authentic representation of their true self. Right. Uh, and therefore, it needed to be affirmed once, once someone expressed it. Um, it's not clear that this is the same thing. Um, 
Yeah. But but education professionals are acting like it's the same thing. So so the the I guess the question is, do we want to think of this like we think of eating disorders or cutting, where you know this this might be some self mutilation uh, involved, self destruction involved, um, and do we see this as potentially representing psychological problems that we might want to address by collaborating between education professionals and families and communities? Or do we see this as an expression of the authentic self of a 12-year-old? Yeah. Um, and um, let me tell you that, that when families find out that their school has been hiding this stuff from them, they get really angry. Um, Which kind of leads me to this point. Um, well, first of all, I'm going to tell a story that I've told many, many times. So if anyone's heard it, I apologize. But I homeschooled one of my kids in fourth grade. And at the time, I was teaching in a PhD program. I had a PhD and a, a parent who I'd known for a long, long time through my daughter. And she was a teacher. When I told her, she like tisked me. She was like, tisk, tisk. And I was like, although as though his absence from that school building and those professional teachers for a year was going to harm him, even though she knew me, <laughs> I should have known I could manage fourth grade curriculum. And I was, and I just was, that was just such a interesting moment for me where she looked at me as though I did not have the same capability she had because I did not have a teaching certification, even though he was my son. I mean, the whole thing, I just got such a negative feeling from it that it still kind of obviously eats at me. And it's been, I don't know, he's 26, long, long time. But uh, that, that sense that she was projecting of like, we know how to do this, but you don't. And it was like, I might know a thing or two. And also you guys are pretty new. Like this whole professionalization of teachers is 50 years. I mean, this isn't. Well, I mean, especially when it comes to um, social and values questions, then parents really don't think that educators have a professional edge over, over them in, in knowing what to do with respect to their own children. I also Uh, had an elementary school counselor say to me that she was exhausted because she had a clientele of, I don't know, 300. And I'm like, are my three kids and are my kids your clients? Are you counseling my kids? I don't, I don't think that they are on your lip. Maybe I don't know. A friend of mine's daughter was going to bereavement group and nobody had died. It just seemed to like beginning to take this track of uh, the schools were filling on in all these gaps, and it was kind of like regardless of whether a child was in a challenging parental situation or not, they were just doing it across the board for every kid, just assuming every kid needed this. Right. And I mean, just to give you some feeling for kind of how widespread this is about um, in, in a school where I know I know an educator at a school in Arkansas, where uh, middle school and this is in very conservative Arkansas, um, uh, a third of the middle school girls identify as non-binary. And the oh. school's policy is that uh, if a child says um, my name is now this and this is now my gender, they will record that and use that in school, but that in communications with the parent, they will use the official name so as to conceal that the child is now asked to be named something else in school. Um, This is now the standard practice. I mean, the concealment part, that's the part that I just... And anyway, which was going to lead me to what is happening across the country, which I think is is interesting uh, movement of parents' bill of rights being passed in state houses, because as I, you know, the, the Show Me Institute supports having a parents' bill of right in Missouri, 
And I, I, I guess I do too, because as I said to my colleagues, these are just rights parents have. We automatically have these rights, but it seems like there are points in times when other groups, basically public education writ large, forgets that parents have these rights. And so we have to, these are more of a reminder of the rights of parents rather than like codification of we've decided that you now have the right to your child's uh, image. Well, no, parents have always had these rights, but now we seemingly have to put them down on paper and vote on them. So that everyone remembers that first and foremost, these foremost, these children belong to their families. Right. Um, and, and look, um, I mean, I think that the ideal solution to these culture conflicts in a pluralistic society is school choice, because then we all get to form into communities where we share enough um, in our values and, and priorities where we can educate our children together. Um, it, uh, but, um, but we have to understand that most families don't have access to school choice currently right. and won't anytime in the near future. And so, you know, we, we can't just say everything will be better when the Messiah comes and all we can do now is pray, right? This right. is not a satisfying answer. Um, there has to be something we can do to bring the Messiah about um, and, uh, and, or at least accelerate it, right? So, so, so these attempts to, to pass laws that will govern what it is that schools teach and how they teach it um, are being driven by this desire by families to have greater control over their schools where mm -hmm. they are now. And um, now I should say that this is, again, not initiating the war. Um, uh, schools are already told what they can and can't teach by the state right mm -hmm. now. That's so they're to, if, if the state telling schools what they can and can't teach is censorship or banning, then schools have been subject to censorship and banning for their entire history. So schools, for example, have, or states have laws about the teaching of evolution and not teaching creationism. And, and that, that's a banning or a censorship. It's just, it's an expression of a preference. Uh, now, mind you, it's consistent with my preference. I, I, I would prefer that schools teach evolution, um, but, but that's for me. And if we're gonna be truly pluralistic, um, then we have to understand that other people have different preferences. And I do think and, people yeah. realized during the pandemic uh, that school boards pick curriculum and that it doesn't just appear that you happen to have Pearson or uh, something else, that school boards pick these curriculums and that, um, that states have content standards and that those tests that the kids take every spring are against these content standards. And now, you know, there's a little bit more information about what I, they're arguing in the, this hearing today about the social studies content standards, which I do know people got really worked up about common core being content standards, but all of a sudden it's like, well, I didn't know that, you know, this was in our content standards. And I didn't know that the school board picked this curriculum or was it allowed to pick the 1619 project. And now people are realizing how school boards work and going to school board meetings, which I think is fascinating too, but also, in the beginning of the pandemic, what I thought was really interesting as someone who's been in this space a long time is parents who had bought expensive houses in top rated districts and their schools were closed and they were really mad. And they're like, I don't want my school closed. It's right. like you are powerless in that decision. You have no power now. Well, right, look, I mean, the the education uh, system blew it politically in multiple ways. Um, 
so they angered parents by failing to offer in-person instruction when parents sometimes wanted that. Um, and, and also these value and political issues, I think were out of sync and low education quality, right? All of these things. Um, but I, I think the, the other thing that for the education reform movement to keep in mind here is what resonates with parents and what gets them to act politically. Um, if you want to change policy, you have to organize people to act and, and persuade their elected representatives to, to support something. And I think we've made a variety of, of pleas in the educational reform movement over its history, all of which are true, but they don't resonate equally well. So, for example, we, we used to say to people, you know, you should support school choice because it promotes liberty. Liberty is good. That's true, but it doesn't resonate very well. It's too abstract for a lot of people. Um, we said you need to do it because um, it's unjust that some people can access a desired school while others cannot. Um, equity and justice demand that you support it. Again, totally true, but doesn't resonate very well. We told families that, or we, we made the pitch that if you increase choice and competition, you'll improve efficiency and that achievement will improve. Graduation- I haven't found that one to be successful. <laughs> um, and, and that also is true, but, but also does, does not resonate very mm -hmm. well because as it turns out, families want a lot of things from their kids' education and achievement is only one of them. That's right. Um, and, and I think what we're learning in the last two years, what I'm learning and I think the education reform movement should be learning is that the values argument resonates particularly well, especially with with Republican constituencies and particularly with, with upper middle class constituencies that have disproportionate political power. And as unjust as that political system is, that upper middle class people have more political power, that is a reality. And we should work within that reality. And if we wanna prevail, then we have to appeal to what motivates upper middle class families. And Suburban upper middle moms. class families care <laughs> a lot that their daughters not be boys, um, if they don't think that's what their daughter really is. Um, and, uh, and also that they want, you know, they don't want their, their white children to be told that they're oppressors and they don't want their black children to be told that they're oppressed and that there's right. nothing that one can do about this situation. But these are all that's things right. that people don't like. Um, they don't like it. Right. Uh, and they don't like the lying, the, the concealment and the lying really like what gives a school a right to do that. Um, here's my last Maybe question. Sort of transition closets. Yeah, I saw a teacher on a video. Right, explain transition closet. So, so you know, um, this is to facilitate someone who is transitioning in their gender identity, so that they can leave home in clothing that resembles their their biological gender. Um, but that, that when their parents are okay with that, the parents are okay with, and then to hide it from the parents that they're changing they can uh, swap out the clothes that they're wearing so they can wear a different gender, clothes that, that would conform with a different gender identity when they arrive at school. And the school then facilitates this by having a place uh, for them to store and swap out their clothing. And I mean, look, look yeah. if I thought my child was absolutely college bound and had to be a doctor, a lawyer, and a teacher at the school discovered that my child loves music composition and they want to do that and they had to talk me into it fine but they can't do it without me right i'm part of that equation so to the extent that they're changing my life's child my child's life plan 
I need to be part of that conversation. That's the part that really, you know, if my child is completely changing their life plan or their gender, you can't, I don't understand like the arrogance of thinking that the parent isn't part of that conversation. Uh, I agree, but I think that that it comes from um, a perspective that the parent is the problem and that the child gotcha. needs to be rescued <clears throat> from the backwardness of the parents and that the responsibility of the education professional is to advocate for the child against the parents. That's what they think their job is at, at an increasing rate. This mm-hmm. is becoming more common in the education workforce to have mm-hmm. this orientation. And um and is that coming out of ed schools or where's that? Um, I mean, yes, but it, it flows naturally from, from the perspective of, of, of teaching as a, um, uh, as a uh, high expertise profession, right? And so they, I think that's part of it. And also, um, you know, the, the system of assigning children to, to public schools is also based on the idea that parents aren't particularly good at, at choosing yeah, or yeah. controlling the educate, and therefore okay. others are the experts and not be making decisions on behalf of children. So that in some ways the, the parents are there to give birth, uh, but the state actually raises children is really uh, the, ultimately the perspective. Here. You gave an award, not to Plato, wait, remind me, you gave an award. Yes. So, well, uh, so on my, my blog, uh, a few friends and I have, you know, largely to amuse ourselves, we give out two awards a year, um, the Al Copeland Humanitarian Award uh, and the, the William Higginbotham Inhumanitarian Award, um, you know, for, for someone who does something good and, and something bad. Um, these aren't the best and worst people, but it's, you know, and it's, and it's largely uh, meant to be amusing. It's not, it's not very serious, actually. Um, uh, but yes, I mean, we, 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 we did uh, once award uh, Plato uh, with the, the, the Higgy, the, the Inhumanitarian Award uh, for suggesting that children should be raised communally by the state, right, which, which is in the Republic. But don't get me wrong, I like classical education, and there's, sure. a, lot of, there's a lot about, about Plato that, that, that I like also. So, so I'm, not, I'm not consistent on this. Um, one last question you know, from your perspective of doing this for a while, do you think this is a, a permanent change or is this a fad? Is, uh, the, the is CRT going to give way to more or is this just a of the moment reaction to the pandemic kind of thing? So uh, I think there are two permanent changes here uh, that we have to kind of get on board with or become irrelevant. Um, one is that, um, that I think... Uh, parents increasingly understand that education is an extension of parenting and that they have to monitor uh, to ensure that the, that the education is consistent with the preferences and values that they have at home. I think that that's a permanent condition now. Uh, essentially the public education system broke faith mm-hmm. with families over the last mm-hmm. few years and parents noticed this and restoring that faith cannot be done overnight. Um, and so this is an enduring change. This 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 tension now between families and school is is an enduring change. The second uh, reality that I think we have to face is that these parents will organize and agitate for themselves um, politically, no matter what the education reform movement does. Um, and so either we can kind of jump in and try to steer them towards what we think are more productive solutions like school choice, which 
allows for a pluralistic society. Um, or, or they're going to do their own things without us. But they're going to do it one way or another. It's not up to us. We can't stop them. If we, if we decide to ignore them, they're still going to act politically and they're going to win a lot. Um, and so it seems to me that, that we need to engage them um, and, and try to understand them in a sympathetic way so that we can help them achieve their goals in a more productive fashion. Or they're going to do it anyway, and we're just going to be irrelevant as a movement. Um, and so, uh, I, you know, I like to, to think, remind people of the Children's Defense Fund, which in the 80s and 90s was a really important advocacy organization on welfare issues. Mm-hmm. And, you know, no welfare reform policy was considered without consulting the Children's Defense Fund and what they thought about it. And Marion Wright Elliman was a very important yeah. and powerful figure. Um, but once the 96 Education, uh, 96 Welfare Reform Act was passed in a bipartisan fashion, um, uh, Children's Defense Fund became irrelevant. And, and Children's Defense Fund didn't really adapt to its new circumstance. It just kept doing its thing. And here's the, the amazing part. It still exists. Donors still give it millions of dollars. They still issue white papers. They still have conferences. They still give speeches to each other about how right they are. And the education reform movement is dangerously close to becoming the Children's Defense Fund. Well, you know, there'll still be jobs. There'll still be millions of dollars. We'll still write white papers and give speeches (laughs) to each other. Um, But we won't matter um, if we don't recognize the how things have changed, what the opportunity is in front of us, and do something about it in a productive fashion. Right, right. I think that's well stated. Um, I do think that, uh, I mean, just keeping, keeping the foot on the gas for uh, more school choice in Missouri, I think ultimately, ultimately is a better longer term solution than this curriculum fix, that curriculum. I mean, I feel like that's what I want to keep pressing for, and um, but I, I appreciate. Agree, but, but that won't happen unless unless we're, education reform is part of it, right? That's right. That's, That's right. Less likely to happen. Um, right. I mean, it might happen, but but we could play a positive role there if we steer this concern that parents have towards a pluralistic solution like school choice, right. as opposed to their direct preference, which is well, let's just ban it, right? Right. Um, and by the way, it's within their right to ban it. Um, because things that they previously preferred were also banned. So it's just, right. then it's just a matter of who, who gets their, their ox scored, right? That's right. Um, That's right. <laughs> yeah, but I'd rather than no one get their ox scored. Uh, yeah, I don't want any oxes gored. Right. All right, well, thank you so much, Jay. So yeah, sure. this is great as always, and yeah. um, hopefully you'll come back one day and we'll be able to do a debrief on what happened. I would love that. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you.